Hey, Beg to Differ listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Just wanted to give you a little heads up that we had some technical difficulties this week with people being scattered in various places, and we think we've stitched it all together into a complete whole, but if you notice any little holes, that's the reason, and thanks for sticking around. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is E.J. Dion, columnist for The Washington Post. Welcome one and all. E.J., you have a new book out. The title is Code Red. But you wrote this book long before the outbreak of the coronavirus. It is not titled Code Red because of any medical emergency. Um, You weren't thinking of this particular crisis. So tell us why you wrote the book and called it Code Red. Well, of course, like any book author, maybe I hope that people uh, see Code Red, figure it's about the corona crisis and buy it for that reason. But uh, seriously, the... um, I wrote the book, uh, which is subtitled How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country, uh, because I was very worried that uh, progressives and moderates, whom I argue agree on so much in terms of what direction they want the country to move in, that I was worried that they would not see this as an occasion to unite, but see this as an occasion to divide from each other when not only given the Trump presidency, Uh, But also, given the radicalization of conservatism in the Republican Party, they must come together in 2020. The first sentence of the book is, will progressives and moderates feud while America burns? Um, And what I argue in the book is on a number of fronts, if you look at health care, yes, we saw in the primaries there were disagreements on whether we should move uh, to single payer health care, Medicare for all or whether we should get everyone coverage by building on Obamacare, uh, completing the job with a public option. Um, Those are real differences. They need to be debated. I talk about those differences in my book. But the fact is that both sides want to move to a world where every American has decent and affordable health insurance. And I run down a series of uh, issues like this, uh, uh, free college is an issue that Bernie Sanders made front, uh, put front and center. Um, there are uh, more moderate people who say um, we can't move immediately toward free college. This might subsidize the wealthy, as Pete Buttigieg argued during the primaries. Yet moderates all agree that a combination of much, much easier access to college, perhaps by free community college, and also greater access uh, to um, post-secondary training for people uh, who don't want to go to college right away or prefer uh, to have training rather than college, they agree on this and they agree on the urgency of climate change and acting. And so I argue that they should look at each other and say, this is a time to work together. And if the ideas don't persuade them, Donald Trump should, because he is a threat to many, many values Uh, that progressives and moderates, and indeed uh, many conservatives uh, like you, Mona, 
um, uh, uh, feel are being violated uh, during uh, the Trump presidency. So, EJ, as a conservative reading your book, um, I, first of all, congratulations. It's beautifully done and, uh, and, and, and really full of really interesting nuggets and, and lots of history. So, um, so very, very good work. Um, as a conservative, though, I have to tell you that there was, there wasn't too much to bring me along. Um, you know, the, the $15 minimum wage, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, you know, there are many things that you sort of drop along saying that all reasonable people should agree that these are the things we want. <laughs> and of course, you are speaking to an audience that tends to be to the left of the center. So maybe Damon and Bill can nod along with that. But but uh, for those of us on the right, even the Trump skeptical right, um, there there wasn't too much in there for us, was there? There was one thing you did talk about that you think the um, that the uh, uh, moderates and liberals and pro- progressives should be for a vigorous world role for the United States. You did say that. I, I know that uh, your worry is that uh, I haven't given much here to conservatives, and that's a, uh, I would say, for someone of your point of view, especially, that's a, a major point that I make. And I argue that um, for um, progressives and um, uh, moderates, they should take a look at the world and say, would the world be better off if the United States withdrew? and influence in the world shifts to, say, China or Russia. Um, And as Barack Obama argued eloquently at the end of his term, um, a United States influence in the world, uh, despite our flaws, despite the mistakes uh, we made in the past, despite moments when we weren't really supporters of democracy in particular instances, um, despite that, we tend to put issues, we, the United States, tend to put issues on the table related to human rights and democracy uh, that wouldn't be there without us. Women's rights is another. Um, but I also argue that supporters of internationalism can learn a lot from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They offered powerful critiques of traditional internationalism by saying that um, internationalists have not really stood up enough for the interests of American workers or for the interests of Main Streets uh, when they did when they were dealing with international economic policy, um, and what I argue is for progressives they should look back on the original architects of um, of the liberal international order, Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt, because they won support for American engagement in the world partly because they were deeply committed to creating a more just world, to a kind of social democratic bargain uh, across uh, the West. And so what you need, in a sense, is the liberal internationalism that Joe Biden uh, defends, corrected by the concerns of uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, for working people and Main Street. Uh, That is, from the point of view of conservatives, I think the only way to maintain broad support uh, for a strong American role in the world. I think the um, the whole role of the neoconservatives in this is very interesting and possibly relevant. I, I agree. Um, what I'm hoping for is that 
without being immodest, that we can perhaps bring to liberalism some of the caution that um, drove the neo the original neoconservatives away from the Democrats. That is, um, they found that, uh, you know, for example, many of the great society programs began with the greatest of hopes. And what they discovered was that, you know, these people, they, they the original neocons were not at all concerned about foreign policy. That wasn't, that only came much later. Um, but the original neoconservatives were neo because they had they had witnessed what happened during the Great Society, and they had been chastened by it. They had learned to be more skeptical of the capacity of great government initiatives to achieve their ends, and they found further that lots of times when government undertakes something, it tends to make the problem worse, not better. And so that kind of caution, um, bitter experience, you can call it, or or just plain um, uh, alertness to evidence that, you know, is something that, um, yeah, I, I don't want to insult anybody. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody likes to think they're motivated, they're, they're influenced by evidence, but I have think I, I, if I have one big critique of the left, it is that they are so often, um, concerned about their own motives and other people's motives, you know, that the, the Republicans are evil and racist and they want to do terrible things. And we are noble and pure and want to do good things. And then they, they don't pay too much close attention to the actual outcomes of the policies they in, implement. Um, right. And they were making that um, they were they were making that case. I think we have to acknowledge um, that uh, issues like free trade look different in 2020 uh, than they did in 1947. Uh, and that we need a um, you know, we, the, the notion that we might revisit trade policy uh, should not be off the table. But yes, if you look at uh, Truman and um, FDR, they tended to uh, to support uh, movements, um, particularly in Western Europe, that were either social democratic or Christian uh, democratic. That meant they supported movements that uh, supported, ma- favored a major role for government in guaranteeing social justice. We were coming off the Great Depression uh, as well as World War II. No one in the world wanted uh, to fall back into the economic chaos we had um, in the 1930s. That's why many conservatives of the time, uh, from the Harold Macmillan Tories in Britain uh, to the Dwight Eisenhower Republicans in the United States, said, we can't repeal the New Deal. And similarly in Europe, um, uh, both uh, moderate conservatives and moderate progressives said, we can't go back to the world of a free market uncorrected uh, by a, a state standing in for social justice and workers' rights. I hope it is the attitude of uh, of the party in general. You know, on that subject, I would just say that during the um, early Democratic debates, um, far from the caricature that is sometimes um, painted by conservatives of the Democratic Party as all being a bunch of rabid socialists, you had a pretty vigorous and interesting debate about things like healthcare with uh, John Delaney. Uh, admittedly, he didn't have that much support in the Democratic Party, but he and others on the debate stage argued, "Look, you know, if you if you do this Medicare for all thing, all of these hospitals are going to close. This is how they get paid, and if they're not going to get paid, how are they going to remain open? And you haven't thought this through." So it was uh, it was downright refreshing, EJ. Um, well, I'm. Um 
I think there is a piece of the book uh, that um, uh, you would relate to on that front and that our friend Bill Galston would certainly um, have a lot of sympathy for as a Niebuhr scholar. I argue uh, that we should remember what the great uh, theologian and uh, political philosopher Reinhold Niebuhr said. Um, He said that we should learn from uh, the truth of our opponent's errors and search for the errors in our own truths. Um, So, yes, I think I am for a vigorous debate. I end the book by saying a decent democracy depends upon people correcting each other uh, and being open to each other. I would say I think it's very important for conservatives to recognize that when you look at uh, Donald Trump's use of race and at times explicit racism uh, in his appeal, uh, he was building on a long period when uh, conservatives in more subtle ways, uh, although not always so subtle, but more subtle ways, were also using a Southern strategy and other appeals uh, to racial division to further their cause. It's been widely said that uh, Trump used a bullhorn where other um, Republicans used a dog whistle. Having said all that, I believe in intellectual humility. Uh, I, I like open debate. I think conservatism does have an important role to play, and I write about this in the book, in challenging the grand ideas that uh, we uh, progressives, liberals, social democrats have. Um, we need the criticism, uh, just as conservatives need our criticism, Um, I think humility is underrated in our public life. And I think moderation um, is independent of ideology. Moderation itself is a virtue and it's a virtue we really notice that we're missing uh, in the Trump era. Yeah, that that's true. And by the way, it's also the case that some of uh, we chastened conservatives who are no longer in the Republican Party have learned that many of the people who call themselves conservatives are not conservative. Uh, they are they are something else. They are nationalist or or cult members or something, but uh, not traditionalism <laughs> and not not traditional conservatism. But Linda, you wanted in on this. Yes, I do because I think one of the things that uh, we're going to be uh, faced with, and it's becoming clearer by the day, is that ideology right now, at this moment of crisis, needs to be put aside. And this idea of defining ourselves in terms of our ideological beliefs, I've always been a proud neoconservative. I still consider myself neoconservative. I believe in the free market. There are many conservative principles that I still hold dear. But uh, one of the challenges that we're seeing in terms of the current um, problems with our our crisis uh, in the, the medical care that we're seeing on the, the front lines of the of the COVID nineteen crisis is that you can't hew to an ideology and deal with a crisis, and that neither liberal solutions nor conservative solutions are what is needed. And what I'm hoping is going to emerge from this is a better understanding going forward that there are third ways, there are alternatives that combine the best of both, and that none of us can dig our, you know, heels in. Uh, You know, you look at the crisis right now with uh, medical equipment, and I believe the free market would step up to the plate in normal circumstances, but we're not in normal circumstances. 
And one of the things we know about capitalism is that the reason that the private sector moves in and produces something when it's needed is that they can usually get a good price for it. And uh, this may be the time in our history when we need command uh, at least over a part of our economy and we need price controls that we can't just have companies producing ventilators for ex- uh, for example and then letting those ventilators go to the top bidder so I, I think ideology needs to be put aside well this is called beg to differ and I'm going to differ with my good friend Linda um, so uh, so in a way of course you're making a fair point um, the the uh, it, the, the the too rigid and ideological approach is never a good idea, and especially not at a time of crisis. Um, but the 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 idea that the um, that the market will not step forward and produce what's necessary without government command and control, I don't think that's right. I think what we might need is government buyers, right? Because you know, the reason hospitals don't invest in 30,000 ventilators under normal circumstances is because they don't need them and they would sit empty and therefore it would be a waste of money. They're not even going to buy them now if they think it's just for a temporary crisis. And then again, it'll be, they will sit idle for another hundred years or however many until the next huge pandemic. So in this instance, it would make sense for the government to be the purchaser but not necessarily for the government to be the one to say, you make this many of this and you make that many. And by the way, it's difficult to know how to make things. I mean, it's, it's, it requires this complex um, give and take of, of market signals, price signals. You have to be able to get the raw materials and then you have to have the right factories to make things. And for that, government command and control is going to be a very blunt instrument. Who disagrees? I, I do. I, I want to okay. support Linda just real quick. I've had the floor for a long time, so I want others to come in. But I think this is a classic situation where command and control is necessary. You are looking out there where states are competing against each other for some of this equipment and driving it up because there's scarcity. And there are some cases where the market simply will not adjust quickly enough. These aren't the, the market signals here are not what we need to count on. Here we have urgent necessity. We didn't we didn't use market signals when we needed to produce bombers. Uh, for World War II. This is a case where the public sector needs to act in a forceful way because something has to happen extremely quickly and the price does have to be controlled uh, so we don't have the crazy bidding process that we seem to have now. It doesn't mean you want to do that at every moment. It doesn't mean we obliterate the market in all cases, but this is an emergency and that's why Congress passed a law about this. There, there may not be as much disagreement here as as it is as it seems. What I'm saying is simply that the idea of the federal government having the expertise to come in and tell 3M how to make face masks and where and when to do so is not going to be useful. What will be useful, I guess we all agree on this much, is for the federal government to be the purchaser so that you don't have states competing against one another and driving up prices and you don't have um, the pro- Now, one of the huge problems that we do have, and this is something I want to bring in Damon and Bill on this as well, um, 
you know, it's looking like this and sorry, EJ, we sort of like slid right into the topic of the day and away from your book. I just want to tell everybody, please buy it. Code red. It's uh, an excellent read. Um, but, um, uh, but let us, uh, but, but back to the current crisis. Um, one of the things that seems to be happening is that this epidemic is hitting different parts of the country at different times. And so right now it's hitting New York extremely hard. And here is a case where you would hope that the federal government would play a role because the federal government can say, yes, for now, we need to send all our ventilators that we have on hand to New York or maybe California, a few other hotspots. Um, and then when they're, you know, when the, when the wave then hits another part of the country, they can be moved. But for now, that's where they're most needed. I think what you what you just said, Mona, is obviously true, uh, that there needs to be a central coordinating mechanism here uh, to move supplies quickly from parts of the country uh, where they're in surplus because they've been mostly spared so far to places like New York City and other hotspots that are in danger of Italian-like conditions unless... Uh, unless they get the resources that they now lack, not in a matter of months or weeks, but in a matter of days, uh, mm-hmm. the crisis is developing developing that quickly. Uh, and I I do think more broadly uh, that there is a role for the federal government, not obviously in in producing uh, very complex equipment, but in mobilizing on an emergency basis. Uh, the best engineers from across industry and our engineering schools with some of the people most skilled in computerized production processes to accelerate the development of workarounds for complex supply chains. Uh, If I can take a minute on this, I've been studying the ventilator crisis very closely. Mm -hmm. These are complex machines Uh, And the average ventilator right now has 1,500 discrete parts sourced from 14 different countries. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem because many of these supply chains have broken down, either because of the disease or because of countries understandably putting themselves first in the same way that President Trump counsels Americans to put America first. Uh, And so... We're in a situation now where we have to identify the parts that we can't source adequately from other countries and develop an immediate capacity to to generate those parts in adequate quantities. This would be an excellent occasion for the president not only to abstractly invoke the Defense Production Act, but to put it into operation. Because the longer we wait, to ramp up the ventilator supply on an emergency basis, the more people are going to die. And if I can be self-interested for just a minute, I've been talking to a lot of people my age whose deepest fear is that they will end up in the hospital and there will be no ventilators for them and they will expire when they could have been saved if supplies were adequate. This is a national emergency. It ought to be treated as such. It's not a question of replacing the private sector. It's a question of organizing the private sector. 
Um, you would think also, wouldn't you, that this would be a situation where, and this I'm indebted to um, Jonathan V. Last for pointing this out, but that where the military, which has experts in logistics and in getting things from place to place, after all, the military has to know how to do that, um, that they, you would think, you know, you would love to see a leader. I know, don't, don't, don't roll your eyes, don't sigh, but, you know, we have what we have. But, you know, you would love to see a leader at this point pulling together, you know, Amazon, the Postal Service, the military logistics people, um, and, and so forth, and, you know, putting everybody in a room and, uh, and seeing whether we cannot find some kind of uh, coordination to get things where they need to go. Um, but uh, but we, don't, we don't have that. Yeah, well, if I could just add one more comment along those lines. Uh, the federal government doesn't just have the ability to command vast material resources, it also has an organizational capacity that it can deploy to help you know, stem and then defeat this terrible disease. And so far, the ratio of money to organization has been very, very high. <laughs> and I think it's time to rectify the balance. But that would that would mean the pres that would mean the president or the vice president or their designees really stepping into that coordinating function, doing it publicly and openly. Damn the ideological torpedoes full speed ahead. Okay, I, speaking I, of I, I personally don't understand, Mona, why the president has not, in fact, acted on the Defense Production Act. Uh, you know, you, I don't think it's just a uh, question of getting enough ventilators to the right place. We will have a national problem. We certainly have a bicoastal problem now. Uh, my home state of Colorado has got a huge number of cases and people are dying there too. So it's not just confined to one place. And the fact is, as, as Bill suggested, we need to get more ventilators made. We need to get more masks made. And it is not at all clear that left to their own devices, that companies are going to do this. We do need well, a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week production line on some of this needed critical equipment. I, I, and only the federal government can do that. Okay. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in favor of an all-hands-on-deck approach. I just have to say I've also been looking into this uh, over the last couple of weeks, and um, apparently we are really short on the raw material for masks, this this uh, nylon stuff that goes inside the mask, the stuff that actually keeps the germs out is uh, on back order everywhere around the world. Um, it's going to take time to ramp up to make more of it, so there's that problem. Um, and regarding ventilators, look, I mean, we're all worried about this. This is, this is really, really scary stuff. Um, and apparently dying from, you know, not being able to breathe is not a nice way to go. Um, but the, um, but it isn't just a shortage of ventilator machines. I'm sorry to say they are also really advanced medical equipment that requires trained people who know how to monitor them. And they have to be monitored 24 seven when a person is on a respirator. So there's that we have a shortage of those people as well. I mean, this is a sort of a comprehensive disaster. Um, but 
Could I just say there, you asked the question, why is Trump not doing this? It's worth pointing out that he's being lobbied not to do this by, among others, the Chamber of Commerce. There's a Bloomberg story up uh, that where the Chamber is very open in saying that they are, they don't want the government to do this for ideological reasons and obviously because they uh, oppose a command economy and that the same a Bloomberg story uh, quotes Stephen uh, Grunman of the Atlantic Council uh, making the case that everyone here is making. He says, and I quote him, the market is not responding fast enough to the change in demand and the change in value that these products create. But th this is not kind of mysterious, just Trump. There are forces out there who just don't want the government to take action like this. Yeah, I mean, I think EJ is actually quite right about that. And but that's just part of the uh, the picture. So you have you have uh, the Chamber of Commerce has ideological kind of uh, right wing libertarian reasons to not want to see the government interfere in their business uh, because they're afraid once they do it a little, they'll like it and never stop. Uh, but then that combines with the real kind of uh, ideologically driven skepticism about this entire episode that remains quite lively on the right. I'm looking at Twitter right now as we're recording this, and Rudy Giuliani, good friend of our president, has up here a tweet where he's quoting Candace Owens saying the following, approximately 7,500 people die every day in the United States. That's approximately 645,000 people so far this year. Coronavirus has killed about 1,000 Americans this year. Just a little perspective. Hmm. These are the president and his friends. Now, there are probably people in the White House who are taking a more responsible line on this. Uh, and the evidence for that is that the president sort of wavers back and forth between doing what any responsible president or leader would do in this emergency situation and then sort of falling over back into his February position of downplaying it, making it seem like he can just will it away, jumpstart the economy, even while people are dying around the country from this sickness. Um but we're we're living with the reality that this is the president and this is the party and this is the movement surrounding him and yeah. this is how they react in this I, situation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't think it's I, I the I don't think there is an ideological um uh of opposition to more government command and control so much as there is a um uh, uh, the other thing you mentioned, Damon, which is there's this desire to will it away, to to pretend that this hasn't happened and that this is all that the, the disease is not really a threat and that this entire world mobilization is an overreaction and that we can somehow, you know, get back to normal if we just, you know, get comfortable with a few more old people dying. Um and uh, but and I want I want to get to that. But before I do, I, I think we should just discuss for a minute the um, the stimulus package, because this is also evidence that there really isn't a big ideological um, divide here. If there were, you would have seen perhaps more um, opposition to the huge amount of you know, the unprecedented amount of spending here. I mean, this dwarfs uh, the spending during the um, financial crisis and look, arguably for very good reason. 
Um, I would say that uh, it, it shouldn't even be called a stimulus package uh, because it's it's not meant to stimulate anything. I mean, you could describe it perhaps hearkening back to what we were just saying. This this package is more like a ventilator for the economy, um, just to keep us alive um, long enough to get past the emergency. Uh, but um, but nevertheless politicians being who they are, they couldn't resist putting in several scores of billions of dollars for the postal service. Um, you know, something like $25 million for the Kennedy center and so forth. Does anybody want to comment on the uh, package? Yeah. Well, one thing I want to note is that every Democrat in the Senate voted for this, even though it will clearly be beneficial to a Republican president when we faced a crisis of uh, not quite this magnitude before, but it was an awfully big crisis when Barack Obama uh, took over, exactly three Republicans in the Senate uh, voted for the stimulus that we clearly needed uh, to c- come out of uh, the, the, the Great Recession. Um, now, obviously, some of this is philosophical or ideological. Democrats are in favor of Keynesianism and believe in it. Uh, but I think you would not have seen anything like this kind of politics if we had a Democratic president. I hate to inject such an obviously partisan <laughs> note in this delightful conversation, but I just think that's a reality that needs to be faced. Bill, is it a stimulus when there is no economy to stimulate, when everybody's home? No, of course not. You know, I think your metaphor is a very good one. This is an emergency rescue package. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think it's I think it's overriding aim is to keep workers connected to the workforce through their employers. And in that respect, it's a very conservative frame on a very aggressively liberal approach. Uh, And I think the two parties united in the belief uh, that it would be much better to work through the employment system at all possible, whenever possible, rather than working through the unemployment system. Now, as as we've seen just in the most recent statistics, it's going to take us some time for the policy to catch up with reality on the ground. And during that period, millions and millions of workers are going to be thrown into the ranks of the unemployed and they needed to be attended to. But the major thrust of the package is an emergency rescue through providing employers with the financial ability to keep their workers on their payrolls. And I have to say that, you know, as an approach, it's preferable to any of the competitors and I'm glad they went in that direction. Yeah. It's it's also nice that they they made sure that uh, Trump's businesses would not be able to benefit from this package, nor any well, other member of the Congress. Well, or well, that's business. that is that is not entirely true. We really today's newspapers. Oh, oh, I missed that. Darn, I was so happy about it too. Oh well, yeah, well, as Larry <laughs> David would say, curb your enthusiasm. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, Linda. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I, I sit on the board of a, a major employer in the United States. We have 140,000 employees. Uh, and businesses, you know, all of the sort of Democratic 
rhetoric about how you're bailing out businesses, et cetera. You know, we're a Fortune 500 company or were at least before this crisis. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but, there may uh, not be a Fortune 500. I know, that may be, not mean much in, in the future. But the point is, you know, we do have employees. These are low-wage uh, workers primarily. They're in the janitorial business. Our employees are, in fact, for the most part, still working, even though uh, offices have shut down buildings still need to be cleaned. And in some instances, um, our workers are having to go in and clean up after somebody has, you know, tested positive, et cetera. So they're having to do uh, dangerous work uh, in mm. different circumstances. Uh, the same with we, we clean airports and airplanes and, and other things. And I guess one of the things that I think people need to understand is that when you allow businesses to be able to have the cash flow that they're going to need in order to keep people employed. It's not just to keep people employed who are staying home. It's also to keep people employed who need to be on the job and working. And it's not just, you know, direct aid to a company like mine, but to all of those clients uh, that need access to cash in order to be able to pay for our services. So I do think that the idea of, you know, helping uh, in this time of crisis is a good one. I frankly think that some of the the measures they put in place in terms of means testing were sort of, you know, silly. I think it would have been better to send everybody in the country a check and we could have dealt through our tax system for recouping that money uh, next year uh, when people pay their taxes who are high income. It would have been a simple kind of fix to put an extra line on the on the uh, 1098 that, you know, allowed you to uh, or 1040, sorry, that would allow you to, you know, uh, give that money back if, if you earn a certain income. But we do need this infusion. And I am glad uh, that Republicans and Democrats came together on this. Uh, that is the only way that we're going to be able to survive this crisis. Yeah. Um, I, does anybody disagree with that? I, I am in complete agreement. I think uh, for once uh, they did the right thing and they did it in a timely fashion. And that's a good sign. Anybody? Well, I, I agree with that. Uh, but... As I argued in my Wall Street Journal piece this week, there is a history to the fact that so many large corporations are finding themselves strapped for cash right now. And that history has to do with the orgy of buybacks uh, occurring over the past decade and accelerating in the past five years. Uh, and, uh, you know, in in the 12 months between the middle of 2018 and the and 2019, buybacks actually exceeded free cash flow for S&P corporations, meaning that cash was drained out of their coffers to the extent of $272 billion in those 12 months alone. And the beat continued until the market crashed. So it is worth, it is worth pointing out and it's not just Democrats who are saying this. President Trump agrees uh, that the that the buybacks that have become so conspicuous a part of corporate finance over the past generation have contributed to the insecurity of corporate balance sheets, even in times of plenty. Hmm. 
could I say everybody should read Bill's column on this because it really is quite devastating. And Bill is not a notorious democratic socialist and he raises <laughs> these issues in a really powerful way. A couple of th quick things. One is everybody, uh, there are an awful lot of people both on the left and the right who are uneasy with corporate bailouts. And I think that is a healthy uneasiness for some of the issues that Bill raises and because when we look back on these things and see how companies behave, we ask, our, we scratch our heads and say, should this have happened? Secondly, you really wonder if small businesses will be treated the same way as large corporations. Dave Dian, David Dian of the American Prospect was on MSNBC the other night, and he noted that large corporations can deal with the Fed, which is like concierge service. And all these smaller businesses are going to have to deal with the SBA, which is not well set up to deal with this. So I think there will also be a huge administrative issue here. And here's what I'm afraid of uh, for us as a country at the end of all this. We have talked a lot for decades about the difference between the opportunities and the incomes of people in so-called knowledge industries and other kinds of people. Boy, are you seeing that divide here. Those of us who are in certain kinds of work can actually just keep working from home because we can work on these wonderful devices that are sitting in front of us right now. There are an awful lot of people who do not have that opportunity. And I, um, and I worry that at the end of this, as at the end of the Great Recession, will we aggravate our inequalities even more when this is all over? I hope not. I would have voted for uh, this package. I think it was very important. That Maybe we could just go with, I would have voted for this package. Yeah. Let me just allay some of EJ's fears okay. about, about the small business title of this omnibus bill, which is, uh, which is very well thought through. Among other things, uh, the bill gives the Fed, working with the SBA, the power to, in effect, tap on the shoulder and knight a number of small local banks as additional lending facilities for these, these guaranteed loans. And if they were just had, if they only had the SBA portal to work through, it would be a disaster. But in fact, there are going to be thousands and thousands of community banks uh, with whom small businesses have pre-existing relationships for the most part that will be able to service these requests. Uh, and I heard Susan Collins uh, talking about this in considerable detail. I've looked at the legislation myself. And I think she's right. And I think they did a good job designing it. Uh, and I'm hopeful that small businesses are going to be treated on all fours with large corporations. Speaking of which, I found it in immensely revealing that as soon as the uh, head of Boeing was told that in return for the kind of help he wanted, government would have to take an equity position in his corporation, he immediately said, oh, no, no, no. We have lots of other, lots of other options. So some, <laughs> somehow, the, emer somehow <laughs> the emergency disappeared when the need for collateral made its appearance. Yes. <laughs> Funny thing about that. <laughs>
Well, you know, you know, they did more legislating, more real legislating in about four days than they've done uh, in the last four years on Capitol Hill. A lot of pent up capacity. <laughs> Time to draw down legislating reserves. Um, you, all right, you know, yeah, Linda. Uh, Mona, you know, I've uh, always focused on immigrants and immigration. Uh, one of the saddest stories I read this week was about uh, the people who take care of the nannies, the domestics uh, who are working, many of whom are not uh, legal in this country. And of course, you know, people are telling them not to come in. Uh, if you're not going out to work, you may not need somebody to to uh, take care of your children. People are finding, you know, I'm learning all of the various aspects of my washing machine, for example. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people uh, are not paying the people that they're not uh, having come into their house. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I wondered, and maybe Bill knows the answer because he's looked at the bill more carefully, even on these payments that go to people, uh, many uh, people who are not in the country legally, nonetheless, have uh, EINs, uh, employee identification numbers, and pay taxes. Do you know if they have been specifically excluded from this bill? Uh, because we're talking about, you know, 11 and a half, 12 million people in the United States, uh, many of them very, very vulnerable, uh, and who have been an important part of our workforce, some of whom are still working, but many of whom are not. Do you know, Bill? I don't know for sure, uh, but I was talking with a California congressman earlier today who was very, very worried that these people, many of whom are his constituents, are not included in the bill. I don't think the language is absolutely clear on that point, uh, and I hope to find out more about it. But one of the one of the things that reared its head this week, which was absolutely gobsmacking, was this this theme on the right. Um, that uh, not only that we could reopen the economy with the wave of a wand and should do so, but that the elderly have a duty to die. <laughs> uh, die for the Dow, you might even say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you saw this from the the um, lieutenant governor of Texas, who appeared on one of the Fox shows and said that this is something that that he would expect to do and expect his parents to do and so on for the sake of the children or something. And you saw Ann Coulter, you know, circulating um, data that was actually wrong. But in any case, she thought said that this was that the illness was less serious than the flu. It actually showed the reverse. But never mind. She must have been hitting the wine a little early that night. Um but um, but in any case, like that wasn't nice. I, I take that back. Um, um, no, no, you can't, you can't take it back. I have to say, Mona, I want to hear Damon on this, but I can't wait to see the Fox News line. The great Marxist Mona Charon says Republicans <laughs> want people to die for the Dow. <laughs> well, okay. So, so, but the but but the most amazing of these was uh, a piece that appeared in First Things, um, a magazine that our own Damon Linker used to be associated with. And it was an essay by R.R. Reno, Rusty Reno. Um, uh, take it away, Damon. Uh, thanks. Um, well, I, I did want to briefly say before I get to, to Reno that uh, th that Reno's argument is 
is actually a little different than what you've been talking about. And, and it's worth commenting briefly on that economic claim that there is a real, I think, fundamental misunderstanding among some on the right when they make this claim that somehow we should just tell people to ignore uh, shelter in place uh, rules and the attempt of various governors to uh, keep people in their homes and not uh, not out in the workplace and in public spaces as if if we all just reversed now that the virus is all around and, and mixed and then got very sick and many multiples more people were starting to die within a few weeks as if that in and of itself would not lead to its own economic catastrophe. Exactly. Like, like, I mean, the, the problem here is the virus. The virus can either kill us and then destroy the economy, or we can try to slow down the economy for three weeks or so to try to kill the virus. So then the economy can pick back up. It is not the case that you bring back the economy by ignoring the virus. That's simply not an option. And the fact that so many are saying it is not, not a very good sign about the mental capacities of a lot of the people saying it. But the Reno uh, argument- Damon, Damon yeah. could I interrupt just for one second on that point and sure. just elaborate on that for just a second? Because one of the things that you hear some people say, and these are not you know, these are not lightweight people like, you know, the deputy, whatever he is, lieutenant governor of Texas. I'm talking about serious thinkers uh, who are also sort of floating the idea that, well, we can't keep the, the uh, whole economy shut down for too long. There, there are going to be trade-offs and so on and so forth. Um, and one of the things, I mean, for example, Thomas Friedman had a column where he said, you know, maybe we could um, just isolate those members of our society who are vulnerable. So if you look it up, um, a total of 41% of the United States population is either age 60 or above or has a chronic health com condition. So the idea that you could segregate out 41% of the U.S. population to self-quarantine um, and as if they don't have contact with the other 59% of the population um, is, is crazy. I mean, it's just not feasible. It's also the case that Boris Johnson's government in the UK at first thought that they would pursue something like that strategy of try to kind of uh, keep the most vulnerable populations cordoned off, but let everyone else go around, get sick, recover, and then you'll build up herd immunity. They, mm -hmm. they were going to do that. And then they realized as the numbers were going up, oh, well, well, we'll see like millions of people die if we do that. We can't do that. And they've reversed course. And most and many, many, a big percentage of the people who get very sick and also harm the economy by being out of the workforce are younger than 60. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, uh, those who want to think more along these lines about about this being primarily an epidemiological problem, not an economic one, uh, uh, Will Wilkinson at the Niskanen Center uh, has uh, has had a few very good tweet storms over the last couple of days in which he's taken this on and argued it quite cogently. So take a look at that. Now, the Reno piece was actually, I think, worth remarking on because it was sort of within this same genre, but it was not about economics. He barely mentions economics in that piece. This was a purely theological and moral argument that was really quite astonishing. Reno argues that 
the reason why the lockdowns and so forth are bad is because it shows that we're cowards, that we're, we're willing to sacrifice our normal lives because we're afraid of dying. And really, we're just a bunch of wimps because we're afraid to die. If we're going to die, who cares? Life is just life. God is waiting for us at the end. If we care about life too much, we're doing the devil's work literally yep. called it demonic and demonic and, yeah. and then to, to top it all off, to make absolutely sure we got the point. He refers back to the Spanish flu epidemic of a hundred years ago, gets the history wrong and says that people didn't actually try to practice social distancing when they did to a considerable degree, but assume he's right about this. He says they just kept right on living and they were so much better than we were. And he neglects to mention that half a million or actually probably quite a bit more Americans died during that epidemic at a time when our population was less than a third of what it is now. So he's effectively saying, yeah, you know, million and a half, two million people die versus just a, you know, a few thousand if we're lucky at the end of all of this. That's what we should do is just keep playing basketball, having dinner parties, going about our business and stop being such wimps. So, I mean, I wrote a piece, uh, my column about it uh, on uh, Wednesday was uh, trying to take this down a few uh, pegs. And uh, it was it was really uh, I found it pretty offensive myself. And uh, I'm not alone. <laughs> I probably yeah. have more praise for this column than anything I've written in about half a year. So, <laughs> yeah, it was it was excellent. And, and it should also be noted that that First Things and Reno are highly associated with the pro-life movement in America, um, which is a deep irony that, uh, you know, they really only care about abortion and they're really not so high on life as it turns out. Um, I remember I used to, I, I have been a lifelong advocate of the pro-life cause. I, I've given speeches about it and and I know that within the pro-life movement in America, the, the expression was that we protect human life from conception to natural death, from conception to natural death. So apparently um, that's, you know, the, the natural death part is uh, now it's okay to hasten it or it's okay <laughs> not to it's protect It's natural power. death to die it in is, the virus. It is, it is in fact natural death, Mona. And I think there is, you know, there's, the Darwinists among us would say, well, this is survival of the uh, fittest. And they're sort of joined in their forces by the Neo-Malthusians who think that, gee, maybe it would be better if our country was smaller, if we got rid of the, the riffraff, the people who don't contribute. And there are people out there now saying that, that those who are over 60, they're not contributing anymore. They've had their time. Yep. Uh, let them uh, let them die. And, you know, I unfortunately, I think this is sort of pulling back the cover off of some very, very dark elements. And I yeah. think you're going to see more of that talk, not less. If I can't tell which is worse, ice flow economics, ice flow sociology, or ice flow healthcare. Uh, but we're seeing <laughs> we're we're seeing some of each, uh, and uh, you know I think it's I, I do think it's it's a revealing moment. Uh, I used to chuckle at what I regarded as the excess of Barney Frank's famous crack, 
that there are a lot of pro-life conservatives who think that life begins at conception and ends at birth. Mm-hmm. I'm beginning to wonder whether he was so wrong about that. <laughs> but uh, you know, but just to just to make this a little bit more concrete uh, and unavoidable. Uh, Doctors who find themselves in triage situations because of the shortage of ventilators are being forced to to consider the trade-off between older people and younger people. Uh, And this is generating some ethically really uncomfortable and painful moments. Agonizing. Agonizing Agonizing. for for physicians on on the front line. I mean, it is every doctor's worst nightmare yes. to, yes. you know, to be forced to, to determine who shall live and who shall die when more people could be saved than can be saved. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so Which is what Italy know, has been facing now for the last couple of weeks, and we are, we are now quite close. Apparently in New York city now um, the morgue is practically full. Uh, the morgues are practically full. Um, you, you do have, um, you know, there was a very, um, very moving piece by Barry Weiss in the New York times about physicians, uh, writing their wills and making sure their wills are up to date because they themselves are in so much danger because of the procedures that they have to perform on sick people, um, mm-hmm. them at, at much higher risk. And, you know, these are, ugh, it's just, it's just really, um, it is, it is, uh, a nightmare. Um, all right, let's turn to the way the president is handling it. Um, uh, Mona. Yeah. Oh, uh, I just like to come in, uh, for a second, if I could, um, yeah. just on Damon's piece, I just want to read a paragraph from his piece that I thought was so powerful as part of his critique of this view. He said so much for love of neighbor, so much for the common good, so much for sacrificing a little individual liberty for something bigger and nobler than ourselves. It was a very powerful critique of this view. And just on Bill's excellent and scary point, A, God bless all those young med students who are ending their uh, time in med school or try to help deal with this uh, terrible problem. But secondly, this may make us face up to something that happens in the health system regularly when we don't face these dire problems, which is there already is a lot of rationing uh, in the system. We just usually do it by access to health care. Uh, and not in these very explicit choices that and tragic choices that uh, Bill described. Right. Although people who have taken this opportunity to say this proves, you know, that socialized medicine is better than a free market system. First of all, nobody has a free market system, but but a, a free-ish um, system. Um, the uh, the fact is there's no health system in the world that has been able to cope with this kind of a spike in cases. You just can't. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, nobody, I, I don't say you can't. I mean, if we had planned ahead enough, maybe we could have, but there's no difference in, for example, the um, capacity of a country like um, Italy, which does have a socialized public health care system and, and we, 
Um, no, I, I, I am. Uh, two quick points on that, if I could. You're right in the sense that just this massive problem is overwhelming every kind of healthcare system. I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, early on in this crisis, when people weren't uh, to the extent that they could get tested, were being charged an enormous amount, or people who had trouble accessing the system uh, because they had no insurance when they actually had the virus, this does underscore problems with our system that we should think about going forward, oh, well, if, if your point is well taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that we had this, you know, so-called strategic national stockpile of uh, equipment, and it had less than 1% of what it needed to meet a, a pandemic like this. So that was a big joke. And if our members of Congress and our executive uh, officers were actually into doing something other than having, you know, fights on, uh, on social and cultural matters, uh, they might've paid some heed to, you know, just having a, a supply of uh, face masks on hand for emergencies. But I want to talk a bit, a bit now, a little bit now about how Trump has been handling this. Um, we, we have seen him pivot uh, as a couple of you have already mentioned from outright denial that there was any problem, diminishing it, uh, you know, downplaying it, um, to suddenly declaring himself a wartime president and participating in daily briefings. Um, and uh, as has been noted a number of places, his approval ratings have never been higher. Uh, he had, um, according to Gallup, 60% approve of his handling of the coronavirus emergency and 49%, a record high, approve of his presidency right now. Um, so I just, for, for uh, I want to hear you all on how he's handling it. But before I get there, let me just present some data from the past, because I do think that some of this is purely a rally around the flag effect. Um, if you look at, for example, um, Jimmy Carter's uh, approval, when the hostage crisis first began, the first month of the hostage crisis, Jimmy Carter's approval rating jumped from 32% to 61% in one month. Uh, it was back down to 34% uh, at the end of his term. Uh, George H.W. Bush uh, stood, his approval rating stood at around 54%, uh, but it jumped to 89% after victory in the Gulf War. Um, he finished out his, um, his presidency with uh, an approval rating around 34%. And finally, George W. Bush um, in 2001, uh, his approval rating was uh, about 51%, and it jumped to uh, near 90, uh, after nine 11. So, um, so these things are, um, the, the, the public does have a tendency to rally around the president in a time of crisis. Uh, but, uh, Bill or Linda, what's your sense? Whoever wants to jump in your sense of how the president is, uh, leading us. Well, I, I'm going to jump in here because this is uh, so frustrating to those of us who uh, have watched him carefully all along. But I think you are seeing a rally around the flag. And the fact is that at most of the press conferences, he gets up, he seems more or less, you know, sober minded. 
uh, spouts off uh, things that if you're not following it closely, if you uh, don't have a lot of information about it, uh, may sound good, may sound like he's doing the right thing. Um, of course, on closer inspection, it turns out that much of what he spouts is uh, not the whole truth and in some cases untruthful altogether. Uh, and I think that's, that's you know, one of his evil geniuses is that he understands how to attract attention. He knows how to get out there. I mean, there's a reason that he is stepping forward uh, every day. Uh, he wants to be before the American public. And by the way, this is a total absence of, of being able to see any alternative. So I think there is this rally uh, around the president. And the question is, as the ventilator shortage becomes a crisis, as more and more people begin to die, as he pushes for things that are clearly not uh, medically sound, like getting people out there on uh, Easter Sunday, all crammed into church to, you know, celebrate uh, the resurrection that, you know, if, if all of that were to happen, I think you'd see it turn around because I think it would, in fact, uh, be a disaster. But I think your perspective, Mona, was absolutely right. This is the way Americans respond is the way most people respond in most countries. They rally around a leader. It should not be confused with uh, giving uh, the assent to the way in which he's leading, because I don't think he is leading appropriately. EJ? I, am, I, I agree with what Linda said in terms of the rally around the flag uh, effect. I was struck in some of these polls that the rating of how governors are responding is about 20 points higher uh, than Trump's in one of the uh, surveys uh, I looked at. Um, and I agree with her that we're going to see how this plays uh, over time. But I do, and, and I think there's also some variation in the polls. There are some polls that show his, his losing uh, some ground. Having said all that, you wonder, what is the effect of those daily briefings? Are those daily briefings, uh, in effect, a uh, form of political advertising for Trump? Because he is out there every day saying what he is doing. Now, oftentimes, oftentimes what he's saying doesn't exactly match the reality uh, but his sheer omnipresence may also uh, be having an impact. And I've noted that some outlets are just starting to say these really aren't that useful. They are just Trump's replacement of his rallies with something that is labeled a health briefing. Right. But if they <clears throat> if the uh, networks were to say we're not going to cover this, then you got to know that that would be a great talking point for the Trump people. They would never have done this to any other president. You see how much they hate Trump. They'll do anything to stop Trump. They don't want you to know what a wonderful job he's doing. They're censoring him. Right. But that's already taking place, I believe. I, I think NPR announced that they weren't going to cover them anymore. Or, and then the CNN, they're only going to show the beginning and then cut away. And I saw I saw the right saying exactly those things uh, within the last 24 hours. Um, I think I think, by the way, um, that uh, EJ and Mona, you're both exactly right, that I think his omnipresence in these briefings is helping him a lot. And now. Again, it's not going to be the way you described uh, with uh, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and even with Carter surging that much. I mean, we're no longer in a in a context where you get 90 percent approval, certainly not Trump. 
but he has gone up about two to three points, which in within his own very low and narrow range is a lot. I yeah. mean, five five thirty eights aggregate. Paul has him right now at the highest he's been since March eleventh, twenty seventeen. And Real Clear Politics, which is a kind of straightforward, just average of polls, has him the highest he's ever been. So it's helping, but we have to keep in mind, even if the cable networks don't carry these briefings live, local news stations around the country are actually going to cut the best parts from each and lead with them over and over again, which actually helps him because they make him sound more coherent than he really is when he's speaking live. So this is a kind of nightly uh, little advertisement for Donald Trump's reelection campaign. And I don't really think there's much we can do about that in the current context. No, there's, there certainly isn't, but there's something else this is. And that is uh, a process of completely associating the president with the outcome of all the policies that he's taking credit for. And this just underscores Linda's point uh, that this is not a performance that's going to be judged on aesthetic style points. It's going to be judged by its results. And, you know, with every day, the president is reinforcing the proposition that he is responsible for the outcome of these policies. And, uh, and if, if his administration doesn't get them right, I don't care what the numbers are saying now. By November, they're going to be telling a very different story. Uh, and in particular, if large numbers of Americans take, you know, take seriously the idea that the economy and not just Jesus you know, ought to be resurrected on Easter Sunday, uh, it could be a catastrophe. So uh, he he has a lot to lose here. He's enjoying the upside right now. Uh, But if he undercuts or ignores the best advice of the people around him, uh, he has no one to blame but himself and he will be blamed. Well, and there and there's something else and it has to do um, with the nature with with his nature, which is he he cannot tear himself away from his salesman mode. Is I'm the greatest. Everything is great. We're doing the best job. Um, You know, we're doing more tests than anybody said that yesterday, which is absolutely flatly false. Uh, North uh, South Korea has done way more tests than we. um, But in any event, um, he because that's the mode that he is comfortable in, and he really doesn't know another one. He doesn't have a sober you know, let's take, you know, this is a serious challenge. We're going to have to, you know, all shoulders to the wheel approach. He's always selling. He's always selling himself and how great and how wonderful everything is. And as that, I mean, it seems to me if he's not able to change that message and it is split screened with hospitals overflowing with patients and doctors having to, uh, you know, write their own wills and so forth, um, morgues filling up, you know, that's it's it's going to it's going to wear thin very, very fast. And, and by right. the way, I, I think also, Mona, that one of the things we've only got a little over a thousand deaths uh, this week. But even among that thousand deaths, I've lost an extended family member already to the oh. coronavirus. And by the way, she was not put on a ventilator. She was a woman in her late 70s. Uh, and she was taken from the 
assisted living. She's my daughter-in-law's mother uh, put in the hospital. It took, by the way, many days for her to get the results of the COVID-19 tests. Uh, She finally did get them, I think, on the fourth day after they were taken, and she died within 24 hours of finding out that she was positive, uh, Mm. although they were treating her as if. But, you know, my instance, uh, I have a very large family, so uh, it's not all that surprising that I would know somebody. But this is going to be happening in thousands of families all over the country when you think about it. And it is at that point when you actually know somebody who has become dangerously ill or who dies, that this is going to come back to haunt this administration. And unfortunately, I think we're only a couple of weeks from seeing that uh, a large number of Americans are going to be experiencing what my family did this week. Very, very sorry for your loss. Um, All right. We have come to the section where we do a quick round the horn on something we think we'd like to draw attention to. Uh, Damon, do you want to start? Uh, Yes, I would be happy to. Um, I actually... um, this this, I'm going to point to something a little broader than just one piece. It's... uh, uh, Megan McCardle's output, basically, over the last two or three weeks. Um, she was a guest on the show a few months ago. She's a libertarian, a very smart one. And uh, those who are loyal listeners will remember that she mounted a very passionate, spirited defense of kind of free markets in healthcare, which I personally don't agree with. And kind of ended that show a little bit irritated that she had uh, gone so far in that direction. But I really have to hand it to how pragmatic in the very best sense she has been ever since this started. She's, she's on Twitter a lot. She's constantly defending uh, a kind of maximalist response to the virus, to uh, skeptics from the libertarian world and conservative world. And she's written a number of very good columns along these lines, and I'll just highlight one for people to look up from about a week ago titled The Libertarian's Unlikely Pandemic Plea Subsidize Everything. Um, so I really appreciate that uh, because uh, I'm sort of allergic to ideology. So uh, bravo to that. And this is why we love you, Damon, because you're so fair-minded. Thank That's you. Excellent. <laughs> All right, Linda. Well, as you know, I have a one-track mind. So uh, I read uh, an article in today's New York Times that uh, has, you know, bolstered some of what I've been saying and something I said earlier in one of our earlier shows. Uh, the article is entitled, Even Before Coronavirus, America's Population Was Growing at the Slowest Rate Since 1919. And what the article essentially says is that uh, we're having far fewer babies. Uh, we're also uh, experiencing higher rates of death. Part of, And that was before coronavirus. That had to do, of course, with the, uh, the profile, our demographic profile. We have a very large number of people like myself and Bill who are baby boomers, and we are all going to be dying off soon. And uh, immigration. And the fact is that last year alone, there was a 70% reduction in the net number of new immigrants that were coming into the United States. All of this is going to be leading to a shrinking population. And that's going to please a lot of the people in the 
uh, neo-Malthusian uh, category, but it is not good for this country. It's not good for the world. And I think, obviously, if this article is repeated next year, these were July 2019 figures they looked at. Uh, in July 2020, things are going to look even more dire. We have just barely experienced growth uh, last year of about a half a percent. And next year, we may well see uh, an absolute decline as a result of these changes. Well, uh, I I second that, Linda, and uh, I can only hope that uh, nine months from now we may see a little baby boom uh, <laughs> as a result of all this, <laughs> or a divorce <laughs> boom. We're not sure which. Well, maybe both. <laughs> um, okay, Bill. Yeah, actually, Linda, that was the that was the article I was going to mention when Mona said we had to move on. So, thank thank you for doing that. Uh, that. That article pointed out, by the way, that this was the slowest year for population growth in the United States since 1918, an interesting year because it was the year both of our losses in World War II and the Spanish flu, World War I and and and, and the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 675 million, a thousand Americans on a base of 103 million. Um, but what I want to what I want to mention is that the uh, coronavirus has given rise to a new entertainment genre, which I will call the coronavirus rant. Uh, and it's taken on a number of different forms. But the very best one I've seen featured a harassed to the max Israeli mother uh, who went on the warpath memorably, you know, volubly, excitedly in the fine Israeli fashion about the requirement that she now take the active leading role in the, in the homes, homeschooling of her children as long as Israel remains on lockdown. And she worked herself up to a fine froth and then delivered as her closing line you know, if the coronavirus doesn't kill me, distance learning will. <laughs> it was just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say I'm awfully glad that my kids are grown and I don't have to deal with teaching them math. Um, well, you know, every, every time we call our son now, he yeah. says, Dad, Mom, I can't talk. I'm busy preparing the lesson plans. For there tomorrow. you go. I'm not yeah. making this up. <laughs> no, it's really, it's actually very tough on, on young families, but uh, especially when the, when people are working from home and trying to, you know, educate their kids too, it's not easy. All right, EJ. I'm going to do a potpourri real fast. Uh, number one, those of us who are Red Sox fans love Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. It's all about hands, touching hands and all that kind of thing. He has rewritten it for our era to talk about hands not touching hands. <laughs> nice. Uh, secondly, I want to endorse a movement which is trying to get rid of this horrible term, social distancing, and replace it with physical distancing. Because the last thing we need at this moment is genuine social distancing. We need to reach out to each other. If we got to do it by Zoom and Skype, so be it, or telephone calls. And thirdly, we are recording on Nancy Pelosi's 80th birthday. 
And it's just fascinating for anybody getting old to think that her most remarkable two years of her life have been the last two years going into her 80s and the difference she made uh, in the shape of this stimulus package. So I guess she's just one of those superfluous, older than 65 people, right? Not contributing to the economy. <laughs> yeah. Put her on an ice flow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I um, I was going to excoriate Rand Paul, Richard Burr, and Mick Mulvaney for their terrible behavior, but I've decided not to. Um, I'm going to close with the, um, you can look up what they did. I'm not going to talk about it here. Uh, but um, but I want to just stress the importance uh, that the, the, uh, the, package that passed uh, the Senate uh, includes some funding for mail at home uh, for um, mail-in ballots for the November election. There are a number of initiatives. This is something that desperately needs to get done soon, that there's going to be a need for state funding as well, because there wasn't enough in the federal package. Um, all the states are going to need to gear up right away to permit um, mail-in voting for November. So I urge everyone who's listening to uh, get in touch with your state authorities and make sure that this is something that can happen because we we do not want anything to interfere with the smooth running of the November election. Here, here, Encouraged, <laughs> I would say. Yes. All right. Well, thank you one and all. And uh, EJ, thank you for joining us. You're a wonderful guest. And we will have you back if you'll join us again sometime. Hey, it was a great joy. Thanks so much. I will. I'd love to be back. All right. Thank you one and all. Till next week. <laughs>